0: Well, good morning again, and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is, as usual, a delight to see each one of you here with us. Uh, Thanks for taking uh, the time and making space in your day to be with us. Uh, As you know, one of the things we say here is your presence and participation here matter, uh, and we wholeheartedly believe that. So again, thank you for being here. Uh, Now that we are all here together, will you please join me as I pray? Abba... uh, you know where each one of us is at today. God, some of us, we feel like we're on top of the wave riding it. Some of us feel like we're on the bottom of the wave being pummeled by it. Some of us are paddling out, waiting for the wave. Some of us, we're all in all kinds of different places. But I pray today you would meet us, God. Holy Spirit, you would come and strengthen us. You would encourage us. You would speak to us. You would move in our presence. Um, and you would change us, God, that we could become more like you, and that we could go out and do the work that you've invited us to do. So I ask that you do these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we are super stoked to be starting our new sermon series, this exploration through the book of Second Corinthians. Um, and I have to say that this is actually going to be a pretty different series uh, for us. In fact, I think it's different than any series we've ever done. Uh, and I say this uh, because of the complexity behind the book of 2 Corinthians. It's a letter that's written in the midst of some extremely intense emotional turmoil and a very interesting and specific time and place with lots of events that have happened to shape the moments that we're going to be encountering in this letter. And so there's a handful of things that I think we need to investigate before we can even get to the text. First off, this is a letter. Anytime we look at one of the epistles or the letters as we call them, we have to know that we're stepping into the middle of a conversation and we don't have all the pieces for it. And by pieces, I mean that we're listening to one side of the conversation. We've got one half of the conversation. Now, some of these pieces we can often find within the text. Some of them are in there, um, but some of them aren't. So we just have to be careful with how we interpret things when we're going through a letter because we may not have all the details. And in this letter in particular, there are situations that are referenced that we have to go to other books in the Bible to reference, and to kind of dig up, and some of them we have answers for, and some of them we don't. So I just want, to, I want us to be uh, careful as we begin to explore and kind of navigate Paul's words. Not only is it a letter, but it's a letter that goes to someone And we're going to get to these things in a minute. There's a letter being sent by someone, being received by someone, but it's going to a certain place. And this place is Corinth. And Corinth, uh, as you know, we talk about uh, being rooted in our community and being faithfully present in our neighborhoods and the spaces that we go in and live in and all that kind of stuff. But when we talk about that, one of the things we mean is that the places we live in are actually characters in a story, the cities we live in, the neighborhoods we live in, our own home, we could go to all the different homes represented here and we'd probably find something different in each one of those. There's a story that's told there that makes it almost like its own character in this story. And so Corinth has uh, some similar things going on. Um, and I want to get to those. It looks like, I'm going to try to update my slides real quick because it looks like they did not get updated um, The iPad doesn't have Awesome. Okay. So, Justin, if you could help me out. I think we have a picture of Corinth. Yeah, map. Awesome. Great. So, um, you can see that uh, Corinth is in the little square right there, uh, which is great. Um, And then uh, Paul talks about Achaia. used that big word underneath Corinth, which is that whole region, uh, that whole kind of island that's connected by that little bridge there. And that's who this uh, is going to. Now, one of the things that we have to know when we talk about this is how Corinth came to be. Corinth was a thriving city for a long time, and then in 146 BC, uh, it was destroyed by this Roman consul named Lucius Mimius. fantastic name, uh, and he... uh, Kills all the men in Corinth and then sells all the women and children into slavery. And so Corinth lays desolate for a while, about 102 years, uh, with the exception of people who wanted to visit the city, almost like this spectacle, like, let's go see the ruined city. Uh, and sometimes travelers would stay there, but it wasn't very safe to do so, so not, not a ton of time was spent there. Um, then in 44 B.C., shortly before his assassination, Julius Caesar decided to reestablish a Roman colony on the site of Corinth. And then if we go to the next slide, uh, we can see a little more clearly Corinth is right at that land bridge, and Athens is a really important city. Uh, and so Corinth is this sort of connecting spot between that Achaia, that big region right beneath it, and everything going on uh, over towards Athens and so its location this land bridge is critical and and Caesar saw that and knew that if he puts this city here it's going to almost make it an automatic success in fact it ended up becoming the third most important city in the Roman Empire behind Alexandria and Rome itself and so it grew when Paul visited there there were about 80,000 people there so geographically it's set up for success it's this brand new startup city full of opportunity uh but the people who came to live in Corinth were also very impacting on the, the DNA that the city kind of took up, its identity. Um, and so most of the people who came to Corinth to live there were looking for a better life. There were lots of immigrants who came to settle in Corinth, uh, and Corinth became sort of an answer. Rome had this overpopulation problem because uh, when people, uh, specifically slaves, got done with their uh, time as a slave, uh, they would become what's called a freedman uh, and uh, As that was increasing, Rome was becoming overpopulated, so a lot of these freedmen came to Corinth to try to start anew, to start a new life. And so you've got those two groups, and then you have ex-Roman soldiers who, when they're done with their time in the military, they want to take their families to a safe place, maybe a place that they can make a sort of a restart. Uh, and that, for a lot of them, was Corinth. And so we have all this going on. We also have an active Jewish community. Uh, we read about this in Acts 18 that had their own level of self-governance. And so we've got diversity. We've got all kinds of different people, all with this kind of idea of we're going to start uh, something new. Um, this guy, Kent Hughes, uh, he said that in AD 50, Corinth was a young Roman city with shallow roots. Traditions were few, and the city was, and thus society was fairly open. There was no city in the empire more conducive to advancement. Uh, and then uh, this New Testament scholar, Scott Haifman, uh he said that Corinth was a freewheeling boomtown filled with materialism pride and the self-confidence that comes with having made it in a new place and with a new social identity. So we have all this, there's a couple pictures of Corinth, uh, that Angie and her sister took. They were on a trip there. So you can see just some of the, like, there's just some cool stuff. You can go to the next one. Awesome. Like, right, some cool ruins, lots of cool stuff happening in Corinth. Um, Corinth, uh, was also a sports town. You can go to the next slide, Justin, I think. Um, Oh, wow, how'd that get up there? Huh, interesting. Let's see what that turns out to be. Uh, So Julius Caesar had reinstituted these things, and I've said this name a hundred times, and I cannot get it right. Isthmian... I-S-T-H-M-I-A-N, Isthmian Games, uh, which were parallel to the Olympics and just as popular. So they were huge. Corinth had a, Corinth had a theater it holds 18,000 people, major concert hall. It was super Roman, dependent on their goodwill uh, and power uh, and designed to sort of showcase the culture, religion, and values of Rome. Uh, you can go to the next slide. Um, man, it's kind of weird supposed to be pictures of Corinth. It ends up being Seattle. So um, lots of other stuff happening in Corinth. Uh, it was the main depot for the slave trade of the Aegean Sea. And by the time Paul visited, one-third of the population would be slaves. So there developed this uh, gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, one second-century writer said this about uh, Corinth. I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. Because the city was relatively new, its aristocracy was fluid. Since it was refounded largely as a freedman's city, upward social mobility was more attainable than in other more established cities of the empire with their entrenched aristocracies. Socially ambitious Corinthians could seize the opportunity to advance themselves, and as a result, there was an even greater preoccupation with the symbols of social status in this city. So Corinth is a city obsessed with status. And the ascent up the ladder of honor. In Corinth, people would do anything to make themselves better. Even if it meant making everyone else look smaller. They're seeking honor and status wherever they could. And so as more people hear about this, this great life in Corinth, more people are coming there. Competition gets fierce. More people are trying to climb up that ladder. More people hearing about it. And this cycle gets going. This one guy, uh, H. Stansbury, he said, The shortage of reasonable avenues of honor at the top of the political structure meant many well-to-do sought it elsewhere by somewhat similar methods. The options included endeavors such as private entertainment, games and festivals, patronage of new cults or collegia, demonstration of rhetorical skill or philosophical acumen, sponsorship or receipt of an approved honorary statue with appropriate epigraph, and socially conspicuous displays of a private retinue of slaves and freedmen. All of this is happening in Corinth. And why do I feel the need to tell you this? Well, one, because it sounds like America, sounds like Seattle sounds like the pioneer expansion that happened in our country that really wasn't that long ago but also because it helps make a lot of the things that we read in 1st and 2nd Corinthians make sense You know, in 1 Corinthians, it's got a ton of stuff about people kind of seeing themselves as better. And Paul's writing and saying, no, just because you have this particular spiritual gift doesn't make you better than anyone else. And I remember thinking, yeah, on paper, I kind of get that like, yeah, and I know people struggle with trying to, you know, make themselves look bigger and other people look smaller. But I was like, really, Paul, does does this issue so big that it really warrants that much attention? And then I learned this stuff about Corinth and I go, Yeah. It totally makes sense that Paul is having to write these letters to a city whose DNA has built into it this reality of like it's part of who we are. It's, it, we're obsessed with it, kind of making ourselves, not just making ourselves better, but letting everyone know that we're better. So of course Paul's going to do that. And it plays itself out in 2 Corinthians because Paul's going to be dealing with how the Corinthian Corinthian church is interacting with this group of what he calls super apostles. This group that's come in and they're super flashy, really eloquent. They got all the good stuff. And the Corinthians are like, oh man, this seems like it's way better than what Paul. Paul's talking about a lot of suffering. And look at his life, right? He's a mess, right? He's all over the place. He's getting beat up all the time. Maybe God's not so much with him. And So there's all these questions about who Paul is and what he's doing. So it's important for us to know these things. It's important for us to know about the place. Because when we think about our own everyday influence that we have in our neighborhoods, homes, and cities, you should know the place you're in is almost another character in a bigger story. Now, Paul and Corinth have this storied relationship that started strong. We read in Acts 18, 1-7, that with the help of Priscilla and Aquila, Paul, Timothy, and this guy named Silas establish a church in Corinth during a one-and-a-half-year visit. Paul leaves and goes to Ephesus, and then he goes to Jerusalem, comes back to Ephesus. His second time in Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians. It's about three years after his first visit. And at that time, he says, we read in 1 Corinthians 16, that I'm gonna, he says, I'm going to come to uh, visit you again. Because he's in this process collecting uh, a bunch of money to take to the church in Jerusalem. Because there's a famine going on there, which we read about in the book of Acts. Which is kind of awesome how we read these two books starting to overlap. We're going to hit that more throughout this series. But he sends Timothy instead. And the reason for this is because a great ministry opportunity came up for Paul, and so he's like, "Ah, I'm going to send Timothy because otherwise I'm going to be here for a while. I'm going to only be able to visit you in Corinth for a short time. I really want to have a long time with you, so I'll send Timothy instead and make another visit some other time. Timothy encounters chaos, growing apostasy, probably caused by some of Paul's enemies that have been following him around, Um, and so... uh, Timothy reports all this back to Paul, and then Paul decides, I am going to go to Corinth briefly and try to tend to these things, uh, and we're going to read about more, uh, more about this in chapter two. He has this thing he calls a painful visit, uh, and so in that painful visit, his authority, his apostleship, everything about him called into question, and, uh, and this letter deals with some of those questions, but Paul leaves that time uh, wounded and devastated, and he's like, I'm not going back. I'm leaving. I'm not going to stay. I'm going to Ephesus again. While he's there, he sends Titus with a new letter that we don't have, called a severe letter that we read about in 2 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul confronts the Corinthians and calls them to repent for some of their actions. And they do. In fact, the majority of them respond positively to Paul's harsher letter. We read about this in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. But not everyone, and so it's still... There's a bunch of chaos still happening. And so all that is what leads up to 2 Corinthians. So I hope you can kind of see, like, there's just so much going on. And, and, and this one guy said that nowhere is Paul's heart so torn and exposed as in, in this letter. And so we're getting to see something that we don't often get to see. And the last thing I want to say before we actually get a chance to get into the letter is that because Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is such a strong one, there's such a mix of things going on. And there's these theological truth statements that we often hear sermons on, like we are Christ's ambassadors, right? Oh, that's so awesome. But we often pull that out of the story and just look at that. But instead, we're going to try to keep that and all the personal aspects of Paul saying, well, I didn't come and visit this time because I needed to do this, and I felt this way. And we're going to keep that all together because we feel like to pull them apart kind of takes away from both of them. If we look at just the truth statements without the context of the relationship with Paul and Corinth, we miss how those great truths get lived out in sort of the grittiness of a really difficult relationship. And so we're not going to separate those out. And we're also not going to separate out, just like I mentioned, I'm going to tell you and Rich and whoever's preaching is going to tell you about the times where we see Paul doing something that's mentioned in another book, like Acts. Because it's really important to know, so often these books, we think they take place sort of in different universes. Right, but they all take place right next to each other. Some of them overlap, so we're going to identify those uh, too. Okay, I want to let you know that I could I could literally spend hours talking about this stuff because it, I I get my groove on. I really love that stuff, but. Um, I, I've told you what I've told you because context absolutely matters, and I feel like we have to get at it, but I also feel like we have to get at the passage. So uh, today we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11. If you have your Bible, you can follow along there. Uh, if not, it'll be up on the screen behind. We're gonna, uh, these are all my quotes, so we can just zoom past those. Uh, there we go. Uh, and here we go. This is uh, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to the God of all comfort. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. On him we have set our hope, that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now, ancient letters had sort of a template for how they started. Typically, there would be the author would introduce themselves. They would state then who the letter is intended to go to. And then there would be some sort of greeting. And Paul usually stays with this formula. But um, he does something a little different here. And in 2 Corinthians, he takes it a little bit different direction. He uses the identification parts to go a little bit further than just saying, hey, it's me, Paul, to my my crew in, in Corinth. And he's sort of reminding them of some things. And so he starts off and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's reminding them that he's not just some self-appointed spiritual leader. He didn't come with a big sort of docket of letters of recommendation from other important people and celebrities in the area saying you should listen to Paul. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, and this uh, Christ and Jesus or Jesus Christ; those words occur together, two uh, together like that, eight times in this book. Two of them, they're Christ Jesus. The other six, they're Jesus Christ. And so Paul, I think what he's doing here is reminding them, he puts the Christ first because the emphasis is on Jesus' role as the Messiah. He's saying it's not just Jesus because sometimes we think of Jesus as like our buddy, and that's fine, but I'm, I want to remind you that I'm an apostle of the Messiah. That means something. And that it's by the will of God that I have been appointed, not by the will of man, not by the will of anything else, but of God. And then he says, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. And there's a couple of things here. First, church of God. In the letters that Paul writes to the churches, the Corinthian church is the only one that gets this designation. Other ones he says, to the holy people, or just to the people in. Um, But in this in both First and Second Corinthians, he says the church of God. And what he's reminding the Corinthians of is they're not just a gathering of like-minded individuals with a religious or spiritual bent, but they are the people of God. That means something. That should sort of awaken something in them when they read that. And then he adds in this part about together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Well, why do that? If you remember that picture, you know Corinth is this little tiny dot and Achaia is this big hunk of land. This guy, H.D. Bentz, said that while Achaia as a whole suffered poverty and neglect, Corinth enjoyed prosperity. While Achaia led a quiet life remote from the noise and the press of the city and its politics, Corinth teemed with commerce and intrigue. While the Greeks tried as best they could to preserve their traditional culture, the Corinthians indulged new attitudes and ways of life, fueled by the new wealth and unbridled ancestral tradition. Thus, the province and its capital were in many respects worlds apart. I think that Paul, even in this opening section, just these first couple of sentences, is speaking words of encouragement and words of challenge to the Corinthians, specifically to a group that may see themselves as better than the other. And if you know anything about Paul, this actually makes a lot of sense. Paul's kind of got a thing about looking for people that are excluded, He was instrumental in God's work of bringing together the Jewish people and the Gentiles in Christ. and So it's not surprising that he would see uh, one group uh, being left out and seek to bring unity and equality to them in Christ. Um... And then, where Paul usually, the next thing Paul would do in his greeting is he usually says, uh, I'm always thankful for you. Uh, I thank God every time I remember you. We always thank God, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. But here he gives a blessing. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Well, I think Paul's coming out of some relationally tumultuous times with the Corinthians. And maybe he's not feeling thankful for them. Right? That could just be the reality. There are people in our lives that we love, love, love. And there are some days where we're like, yeah, I'm not really feeling that today. So maybe Paul is in that kind of space. Or maybe he is. Maybe he just wants them to know that he wants to be a blessing to them. Right? We've had all these issues, and I've come and had these... Terrible visits and I wrote this harsh letter and all these things. I want to be a blessing to you. If you remember this word blessing means to come alongside and assist. Almost like to take someone by the arm and carry them along. Maybe he wants to say, I want to walk alongside you and help you. It's an affirmation of his posture towards them as a servant and a friend. So that's just the opening. That's what Paul is hoping the Corinthian church gets awakened to as they hear the first words of this letter being read. And then he goes into what uh, Kent Hughes says is uh, the greatest text on comfort in the whole Bible 2 Corinthians 1 3 through 7. The word comfort occurs 10 times in these five verses, Uh, it occurs 21 times in the whole New Testament. So basically, half. Uh, Are in this these five verses. Um, It occurs five times as a noun, paraklesis, and five times as a verb, parakleo. Now I want to ask you: Does do those words, paraklesis and parakleo, have you heard those Greek words before? Have you heard something similar to those Greek words in any of the stuff we've talked about here? Good. You should. Yeah. Right. And you should just nod yes. That was an easy question, right? Uh, If you weren't sure, you could just be like yes. Um, But the word is paraclete, and it means another advocate, another one coming alongside. Jesus uses this word in the book of John to talk about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to come along and be another one just like me to counsel and to lead and guide you. And so we have this word that has some of those same root meanings, right? This idea of coming alongside and advocating for. And so this comfort that Paul has in mind might be something different than we think about when we think of comfort. It has nothing to do with a, some feeling of just contentment. It's not some tranquilizing dose of grace that dulls pain, but it is a strengthening agent that fortifies the heart, the mind, and the soul. Comfort relates to encouragement. Remember that idea again of blessing is to, is to come alongside of and to and to take the arm and and, and assist. And it's important to make this distinction, because uh, for us, the word comfort may connote um, um, emotional relief, a sense of well-being, physical ease, satisfaction, freedom from pain and anxiety. I can tell you right now, even though the air conditioning in here is on, I am not comfortable in that way of being comfortable, right? I'm not feeling like my coziness, which is like 63 degrees max, um, you know, or whatever. But that's not what Paul's talking about. But a lot of us in our culture and in the church, we worship this kind of comfort. We search for ease. But what we find is it only lasts for a moment, right? It passes so quickly. Any of you that have kids know this because anytime you've ever tried to take a nap in the middle of the day when your kids are up and you're being comfortable, and you've just gotten cozy in whatever your cozy world is, and you're laying down and your eyes are closed, and all of a sudden there are another human being's fingers in your eyes going, Are you awake? It only lasts for a short time. It's not the kind of comfort being talked about. Paul's talking about something that secures identity. It strengthens us when we feel like we can't take another step. It sustains us when we feel like we're done. It calls out of us new energy and resurrection life to keep moving and not bow down to pressure. And according to Paul, this comfort can only come from God. But also, according to Paul, God often uses his people to be the agent of that comfort to those who are suffering. Have you ever been really down? Kind of at the end of yourself? And someone somehow just says something that changes your, your understanding. It doesn't like fix you, we're not going for fixing. It doesn't change the circumstances, but somehow it, it changes how you respond to those circumstances. I remember my first year as an associate campus pastor at the University of Washington with a group called Chi Alpha, and one of my first tasks was to lead worship at this conference called SALT, and SALT was this conference where all the college students from the Chi Alpha groups in Washington and at the time Oregon and Idaho got together for this big conference called SALT. And so, um, my, one of my first jobs is to lead worship at this uh, the guy who was the previous worship leader for this uh, conference his name is Brent Johnson some of you know Brent Brent is like one of the most fantastic worship leaders on the planet connected to college students really well he and his wife had put out an album and uh, campus ministries across the country were using their songs in worship and he was a classically trained musician vocally and all kinds of stuff Right? he just had everything And so I was feeling very anxious about this because I was pretty much the opposite of Brent, right? I was unorganized. I was, uh, you know, the guy who's I got sheets falling off my stand and I'm fumbling around and my thing comes unplugged and I don't have any professional training, all self-trained, blah, blah, blah. And so I was super anxious about this and getting ready for this and I started having digestive problems and I'm pretty sure we're connected to that and I was just getting all worked up and just thinking this is going to be a disaster and I was trying to be like Brent and I'm second guessing everything, reworking my sets no, 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 not that song and oh, i got to do something to make that song cool all that kind of stuff. And then I was right before the conference I met this uh, friend of mine who had been in a small group with me when we were both students uh, at, uh, at Western and I was talking about this. And he goes, ah, it seems like you're pretty worked up about this whole lead worship thing, especially this part about kind of Brent was the guy. And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, Greg, I got to tell you the truth. You are no Brent Johnson. And I was like, am I in the helping place? I don't feel like I'm in the helping place. This feels like the, the exact place I don't want to be. And he said, no, 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 let me finish. He said, but Brent is no Greg DiLoretto. And somehow, that changed something in me. And so, all the circumstances were still the same. Brent was the guy the year before. I was the guy now. The conference was the same. But I was able to walk into it a little bit differently because I had been comforted. I had been built up to remember who God has made me to be. And the the, the reality was that for whatever reason, Brent was no longer the person that God had in mind to lead worship there. It was me. And so I had to go and just kind of live that and kind of ride with that and run with that. My friend comforted me. He encouraged me and blessed me to be able to meet the challenges I was dealing with. That, in a very small way, is what Paul was doing. He's doing this because also in this same section, eight or nine times, depending on how you count some possible repeats, are words like suffering, trouble, pressure far beyond our ability to endure, deadly peril, death sentence. Paul knows that suffering is not an unusual occurrence for those following in Christ. In fact, I think Paul would say it is the norm. And Paul identifies this kind of cycle of suffering and comfort. He talks about our shared suffering and our shared comfort and that his hope for the Corinthians is firm because they share in his sufferings and in his comfort. That somehow for Paul there's something about being able to walk with someone in their suffering and in their comfort in a way that kind of helps each other that makes him go, oh my hope in you is firm. It's a sign that God is moving. When I see someone who can not just help, but someone who can enter in and share a person's suffering. Can share their comfort. Paul goes on to describe what happened to him and his group in Asia. He says, they were under great pressure, far beyond their ability to endure, so that they despaired of life itself. They felt they had received the sentence of death. And then the Holy Spirit steps in and reminds Paul and his group that the Jesus that they follow was raised from the dead. So there's comfort, right? This this idea, we've been given a death sentence. Oh, wait, we know someone else who, who, who received a death sentence, and that didn't seem to stop them. We've all received a death sentence. Paul says that this happened, that they might end up not relying on themselves, but God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such deadly peril, he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope. And then Paul adds this connection, as you help us by your prayers. So many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in the answer to the prayers of many. So here's Paul's experience of this cycle of sharing and suffering and comfort. Paul is saying that as you pray for us, we are comforted. And then we're able to continue. Now I'm able, because of God's movement and your prayers played a part in that, I'm able to speak to you and comfort you and strengthen you. And that this is the reality for those who follow Christ, that we will encounter suffering in the world, and that's a reality for everyone. But how do we build people up? How do we encourage? How do we comfort? Not in a way that sedates, but in a way that enriches. Paul's experience has taught him that God comforts so that he can be a comfort to others. God's comfort doesn't stop with us. It's not to make us feel better, but to bolster us up for the task of fortifying others and encouraging them as they endure suffering and to persevere over evil in the world. But how do we do that? What does that look like in our neighborhood? Do we know our neighborhood? Do we know the character that it plays? Do we know the people, as Ben talked about? Do we know the people in our neighborhood enough to be able to offer Help and hope and comfort. Would Jesus say to you this morning, just as Paul said to this group, My hope in you is firm because I see you sharing in the suffering and the comfort of others. I'm going to put my connection card questions up in just a second just so you know those are questions that uh, we ask you to write your answers down on your connection card the worship team if you could come up and prayer team also uh, the worship team in the middle will start playing and that'll give you time to write your answers down then when they start singing that'll be your invitation to, you can join in and sing or you can keep writing if you need to uh, the questions for this morning uh, are not these ones there we go number one do you know anyone who is stressed beyond their ability to endure Or someone who just has a lot of things working against them. Maybe it's you. Maybe there's someone at work. Maybe someone in your family. A friend. And again, maybe it's you. You just feel like you don't have whatever you need to get through something. Number two. How could you come alongside that person and bless them, build them up, encourage them, and strengthen them? Um, What is something you could do? What is a word you could speak? What is an action you could take? that would build them up to face what they're doing. And third, if it is you, what words do you hear, actions do you see from God this morning that may be that comfort from God that you've been looking for? Maybe there was a song we sang. Maybe there's a way someone greeted you or the way someone prayed for you. Uh, Maybe it was just someone that took a moment to say hi, whatever. What is something that happened this morning that uh, you felt like might be that word of comfort from God that you need? Uh, I'm going to pray, and then you can take a minute to answer those questions. If you'd please put those in the wood boxes, uh, that would be fantastic. <clears throat> Dear God, again, uh, I give you thanks, God, that, that, that we have these words from Paul. God, who is in a, a really difficult spot with some people he loves deeply. Um, but not everything is always going the way he would like it to, or the way that the Corinthians would like it to. There's lots of difficulty between the two and yet Paul continues to love and to care and to visit and write letters and do whatever he can to help comfort that group, to assist them, to walk alongside them, to bring them along and allow them to share and be with him also. God, I pray that you would really help us. Lord, as we begin to explore some of the paradoxes, uh, that exists in the, in the in this book that Paul talks about for the Corinthians, Lord, it was it was that sense of we're we're better than everyone, we're we're achieving. God and you invited them to remember that to follow you is is like, costly. It's not upwardly mobile. God, it's it's to die to that desire, and so Lord, I pray you would help us to think about. Maybe what are some of the ways you're inviting us to lay down some of the things that that we might hold on to? What are some of the ways that we may have built into us that might even work against some of the ways that you're working? And help us to see those and not let those things be blockades to us uh, being, being able to comfort the people around us who are suffering. I ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.